Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Let's turn together, if you will, please, to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. If Dr. R.C. Sproul is correct that the greatest challenge facing the Christian church today is to know who Jesus Christ really is, then it behooves us as a church to make sure that everyone, not only in our church family, but associated with our church family, comes to that biblical understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said that the greatest goal in his life was to know Jesus Christ and his sufferings. To know Jesus Christ and his sufferings. Many of us would say, well, the Apostle Paul was probably one of the most brilliant Christians of the first Christian century and probably for the next several centuries that he uh, was, I believe, in the desert of Arabia for three years being taught by the Lord Christ himself after his Damascus Road experience. Uh, The Lord, as he had assisted the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus Christ had been crucified and resurrected, he appeared to these disciples and he began to talk with them, revealing from Mosaic law and from the scriptures how all of those things pointed to him. And I believe he did basically the same thing with the Apostle Paul there in the wilderness of Arabia, met with him and helped him to understand this young man who was steeped in Jewish theology, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish ceremony, in the philosophy and the, um, the theology of the Pharisees, and Jesus working with him to understand how all of that stuff that was in Scripture that he had come to know as well as he knew the back of his hand, how all of that pertained to Christ. And yet when he said that his greatest goal was to know Christ and his sufferings, he was saying that he hadn't arrived yet, that he was still learning Christ who he is, all about Christ and all that he had come to do and the impact of all of those things, he was still learning. He was still understanding. It was still being revealed to him. And so that, I believe, is one of the ultimate goals that you and I have as Christians is to continue to know and to understand who Jesus really is. As we've already stated from last Sunday, Jesus Christ was and is fully God and fully man. All that God the Father is, 
all that the Holy Spirit is, Jesus was, and Jesus is. He is the expressed image of God and the fullness of the Godhead in human form. He is of the same essence and nature and possesses the same character and attributes of God. All of these are taken right out of Scripture. All of these are expressed throughout the New Testament. Amen. But when the Son of God became the Son of Man, when Christ became Jesus, was He still fully God? Or did some aspects of His deity remain in heaven when He became incarnate man? There are four basic fundamental theological attributes of God that we have come to understand in Scripture. God is omnipotent. That means He is Almighty God. He is all-powerful. But in the flesh was Jesus Christ omnipotent? God is omniscient. He knows all things. And He knows all things basically, fundamentally, intimately, and to the extent that all things can be known, He knows them all. And yet, was Jesus omniscient in the flesh? God is omnipresent. He's not bound by space or time. He is everywhere at all time. He transcends human history. He transcends creation history. He sees the beginning from the end and everything in between, all in a grand panorama as He exists in the eternal presence, present tense. And yet Christ, when He became Jesus, was He omnipresent? Fourth attribute of God is His immutability. His immutability. God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. He never changes in essence. He never changes in nature. He never changes in character. He never changes in His attributes. But in the flesh, was Jesus immutable? 
Stand with me as we look at Philippians chapter 2 and read beginning at verse 5 through verse 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. We pray his blessing upon the reading of his word. You may be seated. As stated last Sunday, according to this text, Jesus Christ has always been in the form of God. And that means he has always had the same essence, the same character, the same nature, and the same attributes of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. Not only has he always been in the form of God, he has always been equal with God. And that means he has always existed on the same level of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is not a lesser God than the Father. He is not a greater God than the Holy Spirit. They all exist on the same level because they are all God. And God cannot be lesser than God, and God cannot be greater than God. And yet, <clears throat> this passage tells us that Christ did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, what does that mean? How are we to understand that? Now, I am reading out of the New King James Bible. Your Bible may read a little bit different or differently. We'll get to that in just a moment. I've always been a student of words. And I know that can be tedious for some of you. I know some of you would like to get out of the stall and get on down the road. And I, I'm that same way too. But I want to know what the road looks like before I get to it. So I can understand how to ride the horse when I get out of the stall. And so I have always been intrigued by and I've always made it a point to study words 
especially the words of Scripture. And I have come to find out that all too often the words that we have in our English Bibles are true. They are true. But sometimes they're not easy to understand what they mean. And so it has been a discipline of mine to not only read the text, but to be able to take the words of the text and find out what they mean so that I can understand what God is saying through His Word to my understanding. Now, I approach Bible study from the literal, historical, grammatical point of view which means I do not believe that the book of Jonah is an allegory, a story that was told to prove a point, some, something like Aesop's fables. I believe that Jonah was a real person, called of God to be a prophet to the heathen city of Nineveh, that he ran from God, that he was thrown overboard uh, of his boat when the storm came up, that he was swallowed by a great fish that God prepared, stayed in the belly of that fish for three days and was burped up on the land and then went on his way to Nineveh to preach as God told him to do that. I also believe that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are real. Not like some professors that I studied under who say that the creation account and Adam and Eve and all of the people that lived and all of the events that took place prior to the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, all of that stuff prior to chapter 12 is myth legend, fable. I believe they're real. I believe they're true. I believe they actually existed in the earth. But when you come to a text like this, you kind of wonder... When it says he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, what does that mean? And the second phrase, but made himself of no reputation, what does that mean? And did this, when we come to understand what they mean, did it have any effect on his deity when he came from heaven and became incarnate man? Now, words and phrases, some of you who speak more than one language, you understand that phrases and words are hard to understand because, number one, there are many translations of the Bible that don't use the same words to speak of the same thing. We have 
a number of different ways to say the same thing without using the same words. The various translations of the Bible do the same thing. And yet sometimes it can be more confusing than it can become clear. And second, in translating from one language into another, some words and nuances of meaning change or even are not translated at all because there is no word in the other language that expresses what's being said in the language that's being translated from. And so sometimes you lose things in translation. And it's up to us then as Christian people to take what God has given to us in whatever version of the Bible that you're using and study it with whatever tools you might have or that are available to you to understand what those words mean. And I've devoted my life to that. The literal translation, when you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6b, that's the second half of verse 6, through verse 7a, which is the first half of verse 7, when you look at Philippians 2, 6b through 7a, the literal translation is this. In speaking of Christ, before and in his carnation, the text says, not considering something to be grasped to be equal with God, but himself emptied. Not considered something to be grasped to be equal with God, but himself emptied. Now I know that doesn't clarify it at all. But at least you know what it says in the literal translation of the original text. Now in the King James Version, the New King James Version, the Modern King James Version... This text reads, He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That's the text that I use, the New King James. In the American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, the New English Translation, the New American Standard Bible, and the Literal Standard Bible, these phrases are translated, He counted, it not, he counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. In the contemporary English version, in the Good News translation, these verses are translated, he did not try to remain equal with God, instead he gave up everything. In the revised version, the translation is, he counted it not a prize to be on equality with God, but emptied himself. The New International Version and God's Word Translation and the Holman Bible, these words are translated, He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing or he emptied himself. So, we are still tasked with trying to understand what this means. We know what it says, but that doesn't mean we understand what it means. And so we ask the Holy Spirit, 
as we read, as we study God's word, to give us an understanding of the words that were used. He inspired the apostles to write what they wrote. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the apostle Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God. Amen. So these words in the original text were inspired by God. We need to call upon the Holy Spirit to give us an understanding as to what these texts are saying. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the details and minutiae uh, of what I have come and how I've come to understand what these verses mean, but I will share with you that through the years, I've come to understand that when the Son of God became the Son of Man, he considered all that he was and had as God was something that he could not continue to hold on to in his incarnation. But he set aside or he surrendered certain rights and privileges of his deity in his incarnation to become Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ did not surrender his divinity when he became Jesus. Instead, he willingly surrendered the exercise of certain privileges and prerogatives that he possessed as God when he became incarnate Jesus. Now, do I understand what all that means? No, I do not. But I do understand that that's what took place. Let me give you an imperfect illustration. Maybe it will help us grasp this. Let's say you're an unemployed individual. And you need to have a job. You need to be employed. And so you scan through the papers and you go online and you look for job opportunities. And, and um, you find one that might interest you and you go and you fill out the application. I guess you do that nowadays online rather than go down to the place of business. But you fill out the application and they assign you a time for an interview. And you go down and you have the interview and you pass the interview and you're assigned now a job and a schedule that you are to keep. Okay, so now you leave your unemployment and you go to be employed. When you become employed, you don't become any less of a human being than you were before you were employed, right? You're still the same person, right? However, in your employment, depending upon what it is that you're employed to do, you have to surrender certain rights. You have to set aside certain prerogatives in order to maintain that employment. 
some of the certain rights and some of the certain privileges that you surrender, that you have to surrender, is your independent authority. Because now you're employed and so you're under the authority of your employer. And you can't do anything and everything you want to do. You have to do what you're told to do. And you cannot make, you cannot conform the business to your philosophy, to your ideology. You basically become conformed to the philosophy and ideology of the business. If you're going to stay employed. Now that's an imperfect illustration, but it helps us to understand when Jesus, when Christ left the courts of heaven and became a human. There were certain prerogatives, there were certain privileges, there were certain rights that he surrendered, set aside, in order to carry out what it was that God and Christ and the Holy Spirit decided to be carried out in his human flesh. He didn't cease being God. He was always God. Even in the flesh, he was still God, fully God. But certain aspects of that Godness, those attributes, he willingly surrendered to the Holy Spirit or to God the Father in order to carry out God's will here in this life. What were some of those prerogatives that Christ Surrendered. There are a number of them, five that are very, very important, and I want to give them to you here this morning. First of all, Christ set aside his glory. He set aside his glory. The glory that he had in heaven before becoming incarnate man, he set that glory aside. He surrendered it. Scripture says that glory became veiled, hidden by his flesh. There were only a few times and only to a few people that that glory was shown to them. I think of Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when Christ's glory shone through the flesh and they saw him. Scripture says that he shone brighter than the noonday sun. That glory, the brilliance of that glory, incomprehensible. The disciples saw that same glory of Christ in his resurrection. Albeit it wasn't brilliant light like Peter, James, and John saw, but they nonetheless saw the glorified, resurrected, physical, eternal body of Christ alive. The Apostle Paul, when he was known as Saul, when he was still a Pharisee and training to be a member of the Sanhedrin, had orders to go to Damascus and to arrest Christians and bring them down to Jerusalem to stand trial and to be persecuted on the road to Damascus. A great light shone in the way and knocked him off his ride, donkey, I would imagine, and blinded his eyes. That was the glory of the resurrected Lord. 
But for the most part in his flesh, that glory was veiled. It was suppressed. And this is clearly stated in John chapter 17. In the high priestly prayer of Christ, in verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. That, that glory that he had had been set aside. He says in verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then he says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given to me. They hadn't seen, Peter, James, and John saw certain aspects of the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they didn't see the full glory of Christ. The Apostle Paul saw the brilliance of the glory of Christ, but he didn't see the full glory of the resurrected Christ. That was set aside when he became human. What does glory mean? How do we understand the word glory? The word is doxa, and it means, it refers to a superior dignity. A superior dignity, honor, power, authority, and praise. In heaven, all of these attributes of his glory were full and complete. And there was nothing hidden about the glory of Christ in heaven. But on earth, this glory was veiled. This glory was hidden. And as a result, Jesus was reviled, not honored. He was reviled and he was rejected by men. He was tempted and tested by Satan. He suffered physical and emotional Pain. He became physically hungry, thirsty, tired, and mentally weary. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was abandoned. He was abused. And he died. These were not a part of who he was in heaven. They were not a part of the glory that was his with the Father. These were the things that he suffered when his glory was veiled. Second, Jesus set aside the personal face-to-face -face relationship that he had, that he enjoyed, that he experienced with the Father in heaven. John chapter 1 verse 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word with means face to face. It means to be in the very presence of the Father. Now understand, Throughout all eternity, up until the time Christ became the incarnate Jesus, 
He was in perfect fellowship, face to face, with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in heaven. And when he became Jesus, when he became incarnate man for 33 years, that intimate face-to-face fellowship with the Father was interrupted. He had fellowship with the Father, yes, but not face-to-face. That had been surrendered. That had been set aside. Not only that, for a brief moment on the cross... When he who knew no sin became sin for us. When our sin was placed upon Jesus on the cross. His dearly beloved father turned away. Turned away. He could not look upon sin because he is holy. Therefore, he could not look upon his son because his son had become sin. We can never know, we can never understand the depth of the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual pain and horror that Jesus suffered at that moment. It moved him to cry out in Matthew 27, verse 46. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That face-to-face fellowship with the Father that Jesus enjoyed, experienced throughout all eternity had been set aside. And the pain and the suffering of that broken fellowship broke his heart. The third attribute that had been surrendered was his independent authority. His independent authority. He set that aside for the sovereign authority of the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. Wherever the Holy Spirit led him, that's where he went. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus did not go out into the wilderness of Judea to be tempted by the devil of his own accord. He went out into the wilderness because the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. He knew as the Son of God that he had to face Satan head on if he was going to be challenged in the flesh and be victorious over the challenge. But it was not something that the flesh wanted to experience. He had to be led. And one of the other Gospels puts it a little bit more forcefully. He was forced into the wilderness to be tempted 
by the devil. John chapter 5, verse 30. Chapter 6, verse 38. Matthew chapter 26, verses 39 and 42 tells us that whatever the Father desired Jesus to do, whatever the Father desired Jesus to say, that's what He did. And that's what He said. John 5.30 I can of myself do nothing, Jesus said. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Matthew 26, verses 39 and 42. Jesus, the night of His betrayal, with His disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane, distances Himself from Peter, James, and John and goes a little further into the garden to pray alone. And in his prayer he cried out, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, O oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. 4. Christ set aside the full exercise of certain divine attributes. He set aside the full exercise of certain divine attributes. Let me just give you one. One that puzzles a lot of us. And that is His omniscience. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows all things intimately and in detail, and He knows the full extent that all things can be known. He knows that. He set aside His omniscience and relied upon the Father to reveal to His human mind what was necessary for Him to know at any particular given time. In John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, the miracles, that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. But, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So if he is God, and God knows all things. How is it that Jesus increased in wisdom? Mark chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. Heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. 
But of that day and hour, speaking of the end of time, the judgment of God, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Scratch your heads over that one. We'll get to that at another time. The fifth attribute. Christ set aside all of his divine riches. All of his divine riches. Now scripture tells us that Jesus was poor. That he was not a man of means. In Luke chapter 9 verses 57 and 58 it happened as they journeyed on the road. Someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was poor. Much of what Jesus had was borrowed. Other people contributed to the needs of Christ the physical, emotional needs of Christ and the disciples as they ministered in the three years of his public ministry. But when I say that he gave up his riches, I'm not necessarily talking about physical, material, human riches. He didn't give up the riches of the earth when he became a human. He gave up the riches of glory. He gave up the riches of heaven. He gave up the glory, the beauty, the purity, the joy, the wonder, the perfection of heaven and all that he was in heaven. And here on the earth, he suffered pain and heartache and anger and frustration, abuse, violence, and death. Even as he spoke of his suffering and his death. The disciples tried to rally around Jesus and Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear of the servant, of the high priest. Jesus told Peter, put away the sword. And he said, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels to rescue me from this death? Twelve legions, that's 72,000 angels. And any one angel could whip the lot of us. 72,000 angels I could call to rescue me from the scourging and from the crucifixion. But he set aside, he set aside his independent authority. He set aside all that he had and availed himself of in heaven, he set that aside that he might suffer and die and complete the sovereign will of God under God's authority so that you and I could be saved. So these two phrases in Philippians 2, 6 and 7 did not consider it robbery to be equal with God and made himself of no reputation, speak of the attitude and the actions involved when Jesus Christ 
was among us here on the earth when the Son of God became the Son of Man. Now, what does that mean for us? I mean, so, so what? I, I'm, you know, that, that's, that's for the intellectuals, that's for the theologians, that's for, you know, other, that's for pastors and so on and so forth to know all that stuff. I don't need to know all that stuff. Well, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because as we stated last Sunday, there's a lot of bad theology out in our world today. There are those who call themselves Christians who don't believe that Christ is the Son of God. There are those who are Christians who don't believe that He lived a sinless life, that don't believe that He really died on the cross, that don't believe that He really rose from the dead. They don't believe that He is really coming again. And so you need to know and understand these things because they're everywhere in Scripture. But we also need to know these things because they have something to do with us. They have something to do with you and me. So what does it mean for us? Well, I'll tell you what it means for me. In his incarnation, Jesus Christ set aside certain divine attributes in order to do the Father's will in saving us. I mean, that's just a very basic fundamental fact. And let me say it again. In his incarnation, Jesus Christ set aside certain divine attributes in order to do the Father's will in saving us. Now listen. In our salvation and sanctification, in our salvation and sanctification, we must set aside certain human attributes, rights, privileges, prerogatives in order to do the Father's will in being conformed to the image of Jesus. You know, that's the ultimate goal of being saved. Romans chapter 8 says it very clearly. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of God. The goal of your Christian life is to be more like Jesus and less like yourself. But that cannot be achieved unless certain human prerogatives are surrendered to the Father. When we're saved, we don't become any less human than we were before we were saved. There are, however, certain prerogatives that have to be surrendered, we have to be set aside as children of men if we're going to become children of God. Those prerogatives that we are to willingly surrender parallels those that Christ surrendered. They parallel right down the line those that Christ surrendered. First of all, the glory. The glory of sinful humanity is surrendered for the glory of Jesus Christ. We step out of the coat of sin and we put on the coat of righteousness. We surrender the glory of sinful humanity for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
I don't know if you've come to the realization of this or not, but if you haven't, wake up. People glory in sin. You know that? People glory in sin. Even Christians glory in sin. You know how I know that? Because oftentimes when I talk to Christian brothers or Christian sisters and they're telling me about a particular issue that they're going through at this time, very often they will go back to years in the past and they will start talking about all the sins that they have done here and there, all of the bad decisions they've made, all of the poor things that they were a part of, all of the things of the world that they had involved in in their very lives. It's almost like they glory in those things. And they've got to tell you about all those things. I don't want to know that stuff. I have enough problems of my own. But here's the thing. Listen. If Scripture tells us, get this in your head. If Scripture tells us that when Jesus died upon the cross, he cried out, it is finished. The sin debt has been paid. Then you don't owe it anymore. If it's already been paid. Amen? If Scripture tells us that God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. That God has taken our sin and cast our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west. That God has taken our sin and cast it into the sea of his forgetfulness and remembers it no more. Then why are you remembering it? Why do we want to continue to live in the past? I'll tell you this. The more you live in the past, the less you will live in the present. And you will be totally unprepared for the future. And yet Christians do. They glory in sin. Even as a saved person. The glory of our sinful humanity is surrendered for the glory of Jesus Christ. What about the fellowship? Same thing. The fellowship with sin and with sinful people is surrendered for fellowship with Jesus Christ and with godly people. The desire, listen, the desire of the saved heart, if the heart is truly saved, the desire of the saved heart is to be in fellowship with Jesus. The desire of the saved mind is to know Jesus. The desire of the saved life is to live for Jesus. What about independent authority? I think we have a problem with this one more than anything else. When a person becomes a Christian, his or her independent authority is surrendered to this, get this, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I love Jesus as my Savior. Well, what about His Lordship? If I read Philippians chapter 2, 
Therefore God also highly exalted him, given to him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. You don't make him Lord. He already is Lord. But you live for Him who died for you, you because He is your Lord, not just your Savior. Yes, amen. You have no independent authority from God. You have the position, as the Apostle Paul says in a number of different letters, I am the bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the bondslave of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no rights except to do the will of the Father in heaven. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, Paul says, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They belong to the Lord, not to you. Certain human attributes are also surrendered. If you go to, let's go to it, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Just bear with me a few more minutes. We're almost finished. Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 16 and following. I say then, walk in the Spirit. The word walk here means to live. To live in the Spirit. To live in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Lusts have nothing to do with sex. It has everything to do with the desires of the flesh. You can desire a lot of things in the flesh that have nothing to do with sex. You can desire power. You can desire influence. You can desire wealth. You can desire all of those kinds of things, uh, you know, if you're, you know, if you live in Hollywood. Walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts, desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit has desires against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. You do not do the things you wish, you want to, you desire. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, verse 19, the works of the flesh are these. They're very evident. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the times past, that those who practice such things continue, this is present active indicative, those who continue to practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't care what church says. You can do all of these things and still go to heaven. They are a liar. They do not know the scripture. You cannot be what God says is an abomination and still live in the kingdom of God throughout all eternity. That is an accommodation of the culture. It is not the truth of scripture. Amen. However, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. 
We surrender. We set aside the desires of the flesh, the desires of the world, the desires of our culture, and we embrace the fruit of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All of the sinful, worldly, vile, egocentric actions and attitudes are not a part of the Christian life. We do not bring them from our lostness into our salvation. They don't translate. We set them aside. They're in the past. They're part of the old life. The new life in Christ embraces holiness of character and righteousness of conduct. Finally, the riches of this world are surrendered for the riches of the kingdom of Christ. What do you live for? What do you live for? Do you live to make money? Do you live to have a fat bank account? Do you live to have a bigger house, better car? Armani clothes? What do you live for? Do you live for popularity? Do you live for power? Do you live for authority over others? There are folks who do aspire these things, right? They want to be movers and shakers so that people will, their name will be on everybody's lips. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Christ, the Son of God, willingly set aside certain rights and privileges when He became Son of Man. He did not cease being God he did not cease being the fullness of God. He simply surrendered certain aspects, certain prerogatives, when he became Son of Man. In Christ Jesus, we, as children of men, are called to set aside certain rights and privileges when we become the children of God. May this be the goal of our life for the rest of our life. Amen? Amen. 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 Stand with me together. David, come and lead us in a song. He is Lord and he is risen from the dead and he is
Lord Jesus, you are Lord. You are Lord by right and by title, given to you by the Father. May it be our desire, may it be our goal today and every day that we live until we see you face to face, may it be our goal to make you the Lord of my life. To your honor and to your glory, I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you and you are dismissed. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.